Hello everyone and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast, formerly the whole tooth. So to all of you shark nerds who are feeling a little lost looking for the whole tooth, don't worry, you are in the right place. This is the same podcast. The whole tooth just got a little rebrand. It's exactly the same as before, all about sharks with awesome guests, just with slightly different packaging, but it's very, very good to see you back. And for those of you who are new here, welcome. This is a podcast all about sharks, rays, and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host, Isla, and every episode I sit down with experts in shark science and conservation to take a deep dive into a topic relating to our cartilaginous friends and the place that they call home. I cannot believe we're on season four of the podcast already. It doesn't feel like that long ago that I was recording our very first episode with Gillian and Jenny, but almost two years later, here we are. We have so much in store for you this season, including some topics that you asked us to cover, Thresher Shark and Spur Dog fans, stand by, and some very, very cool guests. And we are kicking off the season in style with our guest today. Thomas Peshak is an award-winning photographer and explorer for National Geographic, a storytelling fellow for the National Geographic Society, an author of eight books, and director of storytelling for the Save Our Seas Foundation. Now, the saying goes that a picture is worth a thousand words, and photography certainly has the ability to change people's perceptions of the world around them. Tom has dedicated his life to telling impactful stories about marine life through his photography, communicating complex conservation issues through his imagery. He first started out as a marine biologist and was actually partway through a PhD when he decided to pursue a career in conservation storytelling and photography. And he talks about that decision in this episode and how his scientific background still comes into his photography career. 15 years later, Tom has won 17 Wildlife Photographer of the Year awards and has helped to generate real world impact, playing a role in the formulation of new policies, the establishment of marine reserves, and generating public and political support for sharks, rays, and the underwater world in general. Tom is also a founding director of the Manta Trust and senior fellow of the International League of Conservation Photographers, which is a particularly cool title. And if that wasn't enough, he's spoken several times for National Geographic Live and has done a very popular TED Talk, all of which you can catch up with on YouTube. In this episode, we talk about Tom's process, from how he selects a story to setting out in the field, his lifelong passion for sharks, and the power of photography and storytelling in conservation. We also talk about how to stand out from the crowd in an age of social media when everyone has a platform. How on earth can you get your imagery noticed? So if you're a budding photographer or storyteller, Tom has some great advice throughout this entire episode. So make sure that you listen out for that. And of course, Tom tells us lots of stories from his adventures in the field. He really is a fantastic storyteller. And throughout the recording of this episode, I had to remind myself that I was actually supposed to be hosting. um, And I got completely lost in listening to his tales, which I'm sure you will as well. So however you're listening, whether it's walking the dog or curled up in an armchair or having a good clean of the house, which I do a lot when I'm listening to podcasts, I really hope you enjoy this one. Without further ado... Let's dive in to your episode. 
Hello, Tom, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Hi, Isla. Good afternoon. Lovely to be here with you today. Well, we're so lucky to have you because, you know, usually you are in some crazy exotic remote place in the world on assignment. Um, so we're, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to be able to sit down and talk with you. But first of all, I just wondered if you could tell our listeners sort of where you are in the world right now. I am right now at my home in a little place called Grayton, which is a little mountainous village about two hours to the east of Cape Town. And this is my, um, my hideaway. This is the place where I return to after long expeditions and long photographic assignments to recoup and recover and kind of you know, get ready for the next adventure. So right now, you know, we're, it's hot as anything. It's like 36 degrees. And I'm looking out the window. You know, lots of beautiful mountains, lots of greenery. You know, there's a river running through the back here. So it's a really peaceful and tranquil and chilled place. Um, not the ocean. People always ask me, well, you know, wouldn't you want to live by the ocean? I say, well, look, I work on, in or under the ocean for 300 days a year. When I'm not working, I actually prefer to, prefer to be in the mountains or to be in a place where I'm not tempted to do any work, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, you definitely need that sort of that switch off space especially when you're home um and if you get to be in the ocean every day for your job i mean yeah the, and it sounds absolutely idyllic it sounds beautiful um but we could not be in two different places right now we were just talking about that you've got 36 degrees i've got minus two and about 10 inches of snow at the moment which is <laughs> which is so different um, but you've traveled all over the world on assignments for National Geographic. And we usually start this podcast by asking our guests what their most memorable experience is in the ocean. Uh, but when I was doing the research for this episode, I noticed that you've already addressed this on your website because you get asked it so many times. I can make up <laughs> a new one for you if you like. That's no stress. Well, no, because I put a slightly different spin on it. Uh, because we're also going to come to the kind of memorable experience that you mentioned a little bit later on. Um, so my first question to you is, if you could revisit any assignment or shoot that you've been on before, which one would it be and why? Wow. Um, that is not an easy question, I'll be honest, because, you know, over the last 20 years or so, I've been so fortunate to have all these incredible encounters and, and, and being able to explore all these amazing habitats. Um, I think for sheer sort of novelty value and just for being something, you know, completely unique and once in a lifetime, I would probably pick my first ever underwater encounter with a Galapagos marine iguana because mm. it was such a surreal experience. And, you know, and you... You know, and and there is simply no comparison. You know, you're you're at thirty feet. You know, you're in this cold, you know, bouldery environment. Lots of swaying green seaweeds and and just you know red algae. And it's just this. It's a beautiful habitat, but it's not like one of those awe-inspiring wow habitats. And then you come around this rock, and there's this mini Godzilla. There's this little miniature dragon sitting on this rock underwater, eating algae literally a foot in front of me. And it's just a sight, no matter how many photographs you see, no matter how many scientific papers you read and how many video sequences you watched, nothing can simply prepare you for, you know, for all intents and purposes, coming face to face with an underwater dragon. This was truly a place and, and an, ex 
and an encounter and experience that there is no parallel for. There is nothing else like it. Right up there in my top two or three, I would say. There's no other way to describe them, really, other than mini Godzillas. Like, the they just look so like <laughs> a miniature vision. They're otherworldly. Yeah. And they would be weird enough on land, right? You know, they would be, you know, weird enough on a volcano or in a rainforest or in a desert ecosystem. But taking that sort of level of weirdness and outrageousness underwater, <laughs> I think that just really takes the cake for, you know, ultimate ever underwater encounter in my yeah. life. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You're you're so right as well because when <laughs> I mean I've only ever seen videos. I've not been lucky enough to see them underwater, but and it's definitely uh, on my bucket list to see them. But they look so oddly graceful as well underneath the surface. I just yeah, an incredible incredible experience. I'd that's something that I'd never get tired of seeing. But you've written many books uh, over the years and I've had the utter privilege of reading a few of those including your latest book Wild Seas um, which came out almost a year ago now and it showcases not only your stunning photography but also the stories behind them which I really like because we kind of get to go a little bit behind the scenes and sort of see the process and all the work that sort of goes into producing these incredible photographs. Um, and it also talks about your career from uh, from the last, you know, the last two decades, really. If we can, you know, start at the beginning, if you like, you were actually doing your PhD when you decided to transition into conservation photography. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about that decision? Ooh, that was a tough one. Um, that still haunts me to this day. I think every once in a while I still wonder, <laughs> hmm, I wonder. Look, you know, I um, I knew I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was 10 years old. So for me, that was a non-negotiable. It was pretty much, um, I was just that certain. Um, and for me, marine science was always about conservation. It was always about doing the research to then make a tangible difference and, you know, have a positive impact. My, my doctoral work, my PhD work, was working on a species called an abalone. And an abalone is basically a dinner plate-sized shellfish. And, you know, multiple species around the world. But I worked with one particular species in South Africa that really, you know, in a pristine ecosystem, dominates the, the kelp forests. In a pristine ecosystem, you can swim over an air the size of a basketball court, and it's just abalone, sometimes sitting three on top of each other. And these are dinner plate size. So they were, or were, and I'm kind of giving away part of the story now already, but they were really, you know, dominant and a key and crucial component of that ecosystem. And my research was largely looking at exactly what role these abalone played in the ecosystem. Did they structure it? How did they you know, impact upon other species and things like that? So looking at their, you know, were they a keystone? And then at the same time, I was also looking at um, their demise, their decimation, because abalone are one of the most highly valued seafoods on, our pla on the planet. They are highly sought after in, in parts of Asia and the 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 market and the demand for them is, is almost insatiable, and in South Africa um, there is an illegal there is a legal fishery, 
but that legal fishery is simply not able to supply you know the 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 incredible demand for abalone so you know in parallel to this fishery developed this incredibly large scale poaching problem and while the ecological research was amazing it was the poaching it was the actual fact that i was watching a species disappear before my eyes i think that had probably the biggest impact on me and you know you get back in the water to do your first monitoring count and you arrive at your research sites and they're all gone like there's not a single abalone left and you're thinking you know what the what the hell happened here was this a bunch of otters who were having like sort of a feast or some sort of you know party you know was there an army of an octopi that i was just kind of like you know decimating you know and i was thinking and then you swim around this big rock and then and then you start to you know you start to see you know the evidence for the fact that you know this was not a natural event because there was all these you know empty abalone shells lying everywhere you know and that you know that, it didn't happen once. It happened again and again and again. And I was losing my study animals and losing. My data was clear, right? My data was clear as day. We were losing the species at an unsustainable rate. But nobody gave a crap. Nobody, you know, um, no matter how many presentations I gave, no matter how many reports, nobody cared about my, my, my statistics and my significance, you know, my, my, my t-tests and my multivariate analyses and, and nobody cared about my wonderful, you know, charts and, and, and graphs and all those, you know, wonderful computations. They just, I wasn't able to translate the, the, the seriousness of the problem with the tools that I had at hand. Now, fortunately for me, I'd been taking underwater photographs since I was maybe 14, something like that, maybe a little bit, a little bit earlier even. So I had always, um, from a very young age, made underwater images largely to share what I was seeing with friends and family, um, to be able to show, you know, and explain all these incredible creatures and all these unbelievable ecosystems I was encountering. So during my PhD, it was pretty much the norm for me to always, always have a camera with me, you know, to so always have a camera mm -hmm. and to document things that was going on. So I've been documenting, you know, the, the abalone poaching front lines and my science for years at that point. And then I said, you know what, maybe I must just try to share that information differently. You know, so I literally began very, very small with these, you know, local coastal newspapers, mm -hmm. the Hunclip Herald. I mean, this was, I mean, this is as small as it possibly gets. Readership, you know, readership may be a few hundred people and the average age of readers probably 85 years old, you know, all retired coastal people. And, 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 you know, and, and then it was you know, local magazines and, and Vech and Getaway and Africa Geographic. And then it became BBC Wildlife. And so little by little by little, I began to publish in slightly more and more memorable publications. And a funny thing happened in a matter of just, months to a half a year, all of a sudden there was a buzz about the poaching of abalone on the South African coast. And all the same people who, who, who really didn't give a crap about you know, my, my scientific presentations and my reports and my statistics, all of a sudden they, they were listening. I had their attention. These photographs, which, and I'll be honest, by my standards today were really, really horrendously basic. But nonetheless, somehow they obviously captured what was going on and people, people looked at these images and those images inspired them to actually read the caption 
And then the caption inspired them to read the text that you know, I wrote to go with the images. And in a matter of you know, six months, all of a sudden, I had accomplished more from a conservation perspective you know, with these few images. That was sort of my first aha moment. Like, hmm, all of a sudden we have this dedicated anti-poaching force. Okay. All of a sudden, you know, there is better signage in the reserve. All of a sudden people are paying more attention. All of a sudden there's more resources here and there. All of a sudden the the issue is now on on on, on the radar of government officials and various ministers. And I think, ha huh. That was my my first aha moment where I thought, you know what? Huh. Maybe. I can actually have a bigger impact with photographs than I can have with scientific statistics. That was the first sort of thinking because at that point in, in time, if you Googled or looked up the word conservation photography, you would basically get a definition that said the restoration of old historical and damaged images. Mm-hmm. That is what you would have got. Conservation photography, mm-hmm. as we know it today, the the... You know, using visual storytelling to actually make a difference from a conservation perspective, that didn't exist as a discipline. And there were lots of people around the world who were using photographs for that purpose, but there wasn't sort of, um, you know, there wasn't much communication about it and the term simply didn't exist. But independently, I think a lot of people were recognizing in their own personal experience that, hang on, you know, photographs are actually incredibly powerful and if paired with the right words and with the right grassroots organizations, they can actually do something. So that was the first wake-up call for me. But, you know, if you've wanted to be a marine scientist since you were 10 years old, it is not something you just walk away from. It took years and years and years of having one foot in the scientific world and one foot in the mm-hmm. photography world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... We talk about this quite a lot on the podcast, which is the how tightly interlinked science communication, storytelling and science actually is, um, because you're exactly right. I mean, I'm I, I still I, my my main job is is being a scientist and I feel that frustration a lot that you described, which is you're writing the papers and you're doing the research, but you always hit that wall as to sort of how you want other people to know what you're seeing. And quite often we're seeing things that are, especially now, that are shocking or that you feel that people should know about. Um, and, and and science communication and storytelling are an incredible tool to be able to do that and, and communicate your research in a way that actually really, really draws people in. I think I was sort of transposing had I done all of this 20 years later, I'm not sure I would have had to leave science. Because mm. in this day and age, the integration, as you've you know, you know, rightly alluded to, the integration between science and sort of storytelling and science, hardcore scientific publication, and then you know, outreach has become much more intertwined. You know, you can't even get a scientific grant anymore these days without having a major outreach component you know i i know labs at universities who you know who will take on they will look at the you know the size of the social media following of a grad student and that's an indicator of, of how much outreach they can do as well so so i think you know looking at it now had this been many years later i don't know you know maybe i would have gone the mm-hmm. same route or maybe i would have had the chance to 
stay in the science while also being a storyteller. Um, I guess mm. we'll never know, but uh, I think that youngsters or, or youngsters, you know, young people today, <laughs> you know, who are, you know, at that sort of undergraduate level or perhaps, you know, they they might not have to make that sort of tough, hardcore choice of, you know, scientist or storyteller. And I think that's, you know, one thing that I think people need to bear in mind is that, you know, um, if you really love the science and the storytelling equally, maybe you can have your cake and eat it too. I mean, it is 2023, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a different time. I think that's a really good point um and also it's to me as well it's a really that's the really beautiful thing about conservation is that we need all different types of people with all different skill sets you know lots and all different pieces of the jigsaw like I always say to sort of create that bigger picture and 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 you know use people's different unique skills um to help solve some of the issues um around the world and I wanted to kind of focus a little bit more on uh, conservation photography because I think you know you can you can take photos and and things but but one of the pretty special skills is generating impact from that photography and and, and one examples from your career is the manta ray shoot from 2008 which got you noticed by National Geographic but also contributed to the establishment of an NPA in Hanafaru which is you know actual real world conservation impact. Um, and I, I was interested to know what you think it was about those images or, or that assignment that helped generate such an interest in manta conservation and helped, you know, establish the MPA. I mean, Hani Faru, that was my first ever article for National Geographic. Um, that was the first story I ever did for them in 2007, 2008, somewhere around there, I think. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think why do some, you know, why do some images and stories have an impact and others don't? Um, I, I think that's in many ways a mystery, but in many ways we can we can look at this in an incredibly scientific and very sort of logical way. I think we live in a day and an age and an era where people are, you know, literally bombarded barded with images every three seconds on their phones, on billboards, on TV, um, you know, in magazines and books while they're driving. It's, you know, in the plane, in the airport. I mean, you name it. I mean, you're, you're just besieged with imagery and our brains are spoiled. You know, we are seeing so many images and a lot of them are really great as well that we become numb to everything but iconic things and things that are either new or different or fresh and things that we haven't seen before. So when I go out and I think about, okay, um, what's, you know, what do I want to do next for National Geographic? What's going to be my next big story, my next big project? What am I going to, you know, what will I devote the next year or two of my life to or the next six to 12 months of my life to? One of the things I always think about, which is sort of, you know, one of the mantras there is that, I either want to show our audience something they have never seen before in their life, or I want to take something that they've seen every single day again and again and show it to them in a different way so that they think they haven't seen it before. And I think what was really helpful with Hani Faru is that I was you know, one of the first photographers. For those who don't know, 
Hanit Faro is this little sort of bay in, in, in the northern Maldives, in, in Ba Atoll. And what makes it so unique and special that it is home to what is the largest feeding aggregation of reef manta rays on the planet. I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of two to three meter wide manta rays all feeding together in an area of the size of a few basketball courts. You know, there are manta rays stacked from the bottom on the sandy seabed at 15, 20 meters or so, if I remember correctly, all the way up to the surface, you know, feeding together in this cyclone, like it's like a tornado of manta rays in this bay during the monsoon season. And it is visually utterly spectacular. And um, I think the world had never seen images before. They'd never heard of such an aggregation before. So everything I was photographing, everything I was doing was fresh and new. I didn't really have to worry about, oh, you know, this image is too similar to a picture that a colleague took three years before. It was literally largely a blank canvas for me to work with. And I think as, as a photographer and artist and a storyteller and as a conservationist, I mean, that really is one of those holy grails where, you know, that's, that was a real treat. Um, I'm not saying you don't have to work hard for the images. You still have to, you know, because, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of manta ray images out there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still have to have to try to, you know, work out how do you tell the story? How do you make surprising images? How do you create a character that people can fall in love with? Because here's a place to which, you know, I here's a place that most people will never, ever, ever get to see in their lives. Yet I need a person, even in the middle of outer Mongolia, when he reads this story, to fall in love with these manta rays. I need that individual to care as ideally as much as me. And I think you can only really make that happen by trying to infuse one's images with soul and grit and some sort of energy and some so that there's this connection so that these a person looking at these pictures... He doesn't just see something. He or she doesn't just see, but they actually feel something. And I can't put my finger on it. There isn't a formula. There isn't something I can say. If you move the camera three centimeters further left and you, you know, you increase your f-stop and up your shutter speed and then you, you know, pump in. There is no formula for it. it. It's just, you just have to know. You look through a viewfinder. You're making thousands of images. It's not working. This is average. That's crap. And then all of a sudden something happens and you look and you go, okay, this is getting closer, this is getting closer. You make another thousand images and you're getting there and then all of a sudden everything comes together, all the thoughts, all the planning, everything and you just look through the viewfinder and there it is and you know, you you hit the shutter and boom and you look at that image just 10 years later and you go, wow, you know, that has really captured what this place is really like because remember, as a person who's there, you have sound, you have movement, you are seeing, you know, you have these, you know, mm. how do you, you have to almost take like an hour, lo- an hour long experience surrounded by 300 manta rays and distill that into a single image or into six or seven images. Mm-hmm. That I think if you can do that and show people something they've never seen before, I think you're going to get people's attention. I mean, that's the most mm-hmm. basic level, right? Is that I am, as a conservation photographer, I am vying and fighting for people's attention because you know we only have 24 hours in a day and people can only care about so much 
I need my images to be so iconic and so, so powerful and so unique and interesting and connect, you know, and connect with people in such a way that they will give me and the story, you know, a precious, you know, 10 minutes of their day. And the picture leads to hopefully I'm reading the caption and the caption leads to them reading the text. And then of course, the key as a conservation photographer is how do you take that attention? How do you take that gift of attention and transform it into currency, into conservation currency? How do you then, um, you know, how do you then get that person? Because look, conservation is all about inconvenience. A lot of the time, if you want to make a positive difference when it comes to the environment, you have to give something up. Maybe a certain species of fish that you really love. Or you have to, you know, forego using your car. Or you have to fly less. Or you have to, I don't know, um, do something else. And, and those are all things that are either an inconvenience or you have to give up something. And, you, you know, your images and your story has to be so motivating that people are willing to do one of those two things. And I think if you can get people into that position, then all of a sudden you've created a, a, a conservation ally. You've created a person who's willing to inconvenience themselves or who's willing to engage in, a, you know, in an act that takes energy, whether it's writing a letter to a politician or making a donation or whether it's them using their expertise to help an NGO. I think once you've reached that sort of level of stuff, then you can really say that, okay, you know, you're a conservation photographer. If you're just making images and leaving them out there, you're a wildlife photographer and that's amazing. That's incredible, you know. But um, the real hard work begins really once you've made the image because now you have to give these images legs. Now these images have to actually work. Now these images have to go and circulate and make a difference and that is and that is as much work and sometimes even more work than um you know making the image itself and i think with mm -hmm. hanifaru there was a lot of other things that came into play you know you know a photographer and photographs themselves they don't create marine reserves by themselves or in a vacuum right you know the mm -hmm. key is as a photographer is is working with grassroots NGOs on the ground, working with conservations, working with local people. And, and, you know, the photographs are always one small part of a much larger st strategy. And mm -hmm. it's the photographs in tandem with, you know, dedicated individual at the local level and then having, you know, dedicated you know, international NGOs being able to provide the funding and obviously working with local people on the ground who, who can see the benefits of getting a reserve. I think all those things play together at the right time to get Hani Faro protected. Um, I think the photographs played an important role, but they were really only one of many, many pillars that kind of, you know, holds up that reserve today. So conservation photography or conservation is always a team exercise. Um, mm -hmm. It's not a solo act. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The kind of kind of relating to what we were saying earlier about how like tightly interlinked all of these things are and everybody has, you know, their their role to play. Um and especially because this is the World of Sharks podcast, um, you know, we do like to talk about sharks on here. And we can especially kind of see the power of storytelling and and imagery to change public perception and garner support for sharks because up until 
relatively recently, you know, there was still a lot of negative connotations and a lot of negative imagery around sharks. Um, and of course, Sharks and People, which is the book that you published with the Save Our Seas Foundation, kind of explores that relationship between humans and sharks. And I had two questions kind of relating to that, which was the first is why why do you keep coming back to sharks? Why is it important for you to feature sharks so much in your work? Um, and also, you know, what was what was your the overall message that you were trying to get across with Sharks and People? Jeez. Great question. I think I've always gravitated towards sharks since I was a little boy. So for me, you know, uh, you know, being interested in sharks is not a recent phenomenon. You know, that is something where I think, you know, if I went, if I looked through a, you know, a National Geographic magazine or a Jacques whole book or something like that, I would almost linger much, much longer on pages that had sharks on them than not. Uh, and I think it's 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 wired into our DNA, right? You know, we mm. we both we fear and we are fascinated by large predators. Sharks are great in the way because they are the gateway drug into marine conservation. Clearly, mm. they are the species that you know whether you fear or hate sharks or whether you love them. The key when it comes to harnessing uh, an audience's energy for conservation is to make them feel something. You, you would have to be dead not to feel something about sharks, whether it's positive or negative. As long as you feel something, as long as you have a visceral, you know, emotional reaction to sharks, I can work with that. I can, mm -hmm. I can take your fear and I can turn your fear into fascination. I can take your hate and I can turn your hate into awe. And if you already love sharks, well, then you've made my life a lot easier already from the beginning. I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily care more about sharks than about other marine creatures, but I recognize the fact that I can, you know, by telling a story about sharks, I'm actually telling a story about a larger ecosystem. And if people fall mm -hmm. in love with the sharks, or they become fascinated by them. The sharks are like an umbrella species. They're a flagship. And if you're protecting the top of the food chain, if you're protecting sharks, the odds are you're also going to be protecting a lot of other components of that ecosystem. So, by, you know, so sharks are a really wonderful way to, you know, get people into a story that perhaps wouldn't hold much interest for them otherwise. You know, and from a selfish reason, um, <laughs> I love working underwater with what I call interactive species, in, in air quotes, right? I like... I like working with big predators. I like working with animals that acknowledge my presence and that actually, you know, I'm not trying to change their behavior. I mean, my goal, you know, very, my goal is to document, you know, natural behavior as much as humanly possible, which is why it takes so much time. It takes a lot of energy and time to make a predator like a shark feel comfortable with you in its personal space in order for it to behave naturally again. That process is 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 incredible, and um, I love working with wide-angle lenses. I love you know, photographing, you know, large marine animals. So for me, it's 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 something that has 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 garnered my attention and my focus again and again and again. Um, mm -hmm. You know, look in recent years, I'll be honest. I think I've burnt out on sharks a little bit, <laughs> if that's even possible. <laughs> so I've sort of kind of you know, I'm taking a bit of a hiatus a bit of a sabbatical of sharks um mm -hmm. for the last couple of years but you know i i can say it you know um 
you know, a little bit opaquely because I can't talk too much about it in detail, but I have a, I have a major global shark story coming up with National Geographic in 2004 and 2005. You know, a sort of a big multi-year shark project. And, and, um, and, I am, and because I've taken this break and because I've sort of not really worked much with sharks or lazenbranks the last couple of years, I, am, I can feel myself getting excited again. Right now, I'm spending two years in the Amazon. Right now, I'm spending two years, you know, creating the first ever underwater you know, exploration of the entire Amazon basin. So I'm still working underwater, but I'm working in an environment that is completely alien to me. And I think mm -hmm. by doing things like that and by giving yourself breaks and things like that, it will allow me to come back to my first love, which is sharks, with this new, with a renewed vigor and enthusiasm when my next sort of big shark project begins for National Geographic, you know, in, in 20, well, in 2000 what am I talking? Did the twenty? Jeez, my, my timeline is complete. I was like, hang on, what what years? I I've just been in the Amazon for eight months. That's my excuse. I'm not quite sure what day of the week it is still, but you know, you know, it's beginning beginning in twenty four and twenty five. Well, that's that's very exciting. Um, and whenever you're able to release more information about that, it'd be really, really, really good to hear about it. Um, but yeah, it's just like you were saying at the beginning. Um, you know, when you go and have your your break in the mountains. From being in the sea it's just the same as people who are listening at home you know when you're doing the same thing or very similar things over and over again you do need to sometimes even if you still love that thing you do need to take a little bit of a break sometimes just to sort of get that drive back and get that passion back One, I wanted to kind of go back to to Wild Seas really quickly because there was a, a quote from it that that I was I was really interested to to ask about sort of what you what you meant by it. Um, and you said that connecting people with the oceans is like finding the right balance between the carrot and the stick. Um, and I wondered if you could explain sort of what you meant by that. The carrot and the stick, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So I, I have this incredible privilege. I get to spend about half my year documenting some of the most pristine and incredible underwater ecosystems on our planet. I get to see places that are untouched by human hands. Um, I get to travel back in time to places where you just look around and you go, wow, you know, this is what all of our oceans once looked like. And that's obviously an incredibly inspiring and powerful experience that is incredibly motivating and, and very, you know, it's just very rewarding and very um, just utterly amazing, for lack of a better word. But then for the other half of the year, you know, I, I do what I call environmental war photography. Because, look, I, I am I, I'm a photojournalist. And the reality is, is that probably less than 5% of our oceans looks like these incredible pristine places that I spent half the year in. Um, so the other half of the year, I document the you know, impacts of overfishing and the ravages of, of, of climate change and the impacts of plastic pollution and all those things. And, and that's what I, you know, and that's sort of, you know, really revealing the, the darker side of our relationship with the ocean. And, and that's, of course, a much more depressing and much, harder thing to have to do because it is not very you don't walk away from spending three weeks and documenting a shark fishery with the same sort of optimism 
as you do when you've just had a month in one of the most pristine coral reef ecosystems on our planet. If I were to only show and only tell stories about pristine places, I think it would be very easy for people to become complacent and for people to go, wow, you know, that's incredible. That's wonderful. Um, everything seems completely amazing. The oceans are intact. I can, I can eat whatever I want. I can throw away whatever I want. I, I don't have to engage because look, you know, Tom Pesha is showing me all these great places and, 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 and I'm getting the impression that, you know, all of our oceans look like that. So I think that would be a great disservice and I think that would breed, um, ap not apathy, but it would basically breed sort of um, people being complacent when it comes to the, the state of our oceans. If I were to only tell stories about the, the darker side of things, it, if every one of my pictures was a shark without its fin and a dugon without a head and a turtle with no flippers and a, you know, a leatherback being harpooned in the head. And, and, and if I were to only do that, people would definitely get the message that the ocean is, is in deep trouble. But at the same time, I could see them becoming depressed and apathetic and mm -hmm. going like, well, if it's that terrible, what's the point? I might mm -hmm. as well you know, eat the last prawn or eat that or do this. And, and what's the point? Because we're, we're screwed, you know? Um, so I think for me, the carrot and the stick is walking this fine line, walking on this razor sharp edge of showing people the wow and showing them, mm -hmm. you know, showing the picture where they say, wow, I cannot believe a place as beautiful, as pristine as this exists. And then once get them to fall in love with it, and then once they're in love with it, you bring out the stick and you go, bang, and you smack them on the hand. And you go, guess what? That ecosystem you just fell in love with, that's actually in dire straits. But then you cannot leave it at that. And that's the big thing. Where I always leave it is I leave it with telling the story of inspirational people. I leave it by telling a story of, of, of people who have dedicated their lives to that ecosystem and that species and who are working their backsides off to save it. Or I might tell the story of a place that was in a similar, a similar place. Or I bring in a conservation success because you want to leave people with hope. You want them to fall in love. You want them to get scared about the place that they're in love with, but then you want to show them a way, a path, a, a way that the place they love can be saved. And, and by the way, here are these incredible three people who are making a difference. And then on top of that, I need to tell them how can they themselves make a difference, whether that's donating money or time or expertise or writing letters to decision makers, whatever it might be. It's like that's where a conservation narrative needs to end with that. What can you do? Think, yeah, yeah. I think that's such a such an interesting point uh, to make and I, I love the imagery of <laughs> whacking someone with a stick uh, it almost reminds me of uh, Rafiki from The Lion King that's the imagery that jumped into my head then um, but yeah it's, just like you said it's so it's so difficult now especially because I feel like like we were talking about earlier there is so much going on on social media there is so much being thrown at us all the time and a lot of that is you know, quite negative and quite scary. So at the same time, you don't want to overload people with that because like you said, they'll, you know, maybe start to feel a bit sort of dejected and, and like, well, what's the point in doing anything because everything's broken anyway. Um, but at the same time, I think because of that, people are so desperate for good news stories or for 
you know, some kind of uh, sign that things aren't as bad as we say it is. Um, and so that balance is, like you said, extremely hard to strike, but 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 very very important as well. You know, no, it's 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 critical. If you don't hit that balance right, um, you can completely decimate the odds of you having a positive conservation impact with your story. And that's what I'm saying, you know, the real work begins once you've made the photograph. And I think and I think that's sort of the biggest takeaway point from this last part is that if you really want to be a conservation photographer, you need to bring to the table a lot of other skills that have nothing to do with mm-hmm. photography. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we talked a little bit earlier about how, I mean, potentially the fact that social media in a way, can sometimes make it easier for people to find a platform and to get their work noticed, but also it can make it incredibly overcrowded. And the the industry itself is, you know, very competitive, uh, quite hard, I would imagine, to break into. And so something that the Save Our Seas Foundation, uh, something that the Save Our Seas Foundation have released in recent years are the storytelling grants, which you have an integral role in. And I wondered if we could just talk a wee bit about the storytelling grants for anyone who's listening, who maybe, you know, is is looking for a little bit of a, a, a leg up or, you know, so, some way of being able to sort of follow their passion. Absolutely. Um, now, the sort of core reason why I created the storytelling grants was the following. Um when I made the transition from scientist to photographer, there was still a lot of media platforms out there. There was still a lot of magazines. There was still a lot of, you know, companies that were paying you to go out and make imagery. You know, um, so I, I was able to leave science and I was able to make a modest, but I was able to make a living as I ascended that, you know, ladder of photojournalistic, you know, accomplishments, whatever you want to call it. And it was difficult back then too. It was hyper competitive and hyper cutthroat and all those things. There was nothing easy about it. But mm-hmm. the ladder and the rungs were intact. And if you had the talent and you were willing to work your backside off and you had what it takes, you could get from the Hunklip Herald to National Geographic, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then as I progressed in my career, as I was going up and up the rung and then at Nat Geo and things like that, I was noticing that a lot of the types of publications and a lot of the types of media houses that were paying me in the beginning no longer existed. They went bankrupt or they went digital only or they stopped paying or things like that. And I was watching this ladder that I had ascended, looking down on this ladder. It was basically like sawing in half all the rungs below me. It was just like all of a sudden it was basically very few. You were losing all these rungs. All these things were going bankrupt. And what that meant is that photographers, especially early on in their career, were no longer having an opportunity to grow while being paid. And I was watching this all around me. And while it wasn't affecting me anymore, because I was at that already established, I thought, you know, wow, you know, we're going to lose a lot of very talented photographers who are going to give up. Unless they're independently wealthy, there is no economic feasible way to to ascend that ladder anymore to get to a point 
Because remember, National Geographic is not looking for beginning photographers. National Geographic, we are looking for photographers with an established style and a track record of telling difficult stories. You have to you know, be a mid-career photographer with some significant accomplishments you know, for an editor at National Geographic to take note and to maybe take a chance on you. But how are you ever going to get there if all the publications and all the opportunities that used to exist have now disappeared? So I was umming and eyeing, and, you know, and I was already mentoring young photographers at that point, but as an individual... I had limited means and power. And then I thought, look, and I've been working with the Save Our Seas Foundation since the, you know, almost since the beginning of the organizations. And mm -hmm. I was thinking, what? Sh surely there has to be a way because, you know, we, we've been giving out scientific grants for decades. You know, we've been you know, giving out money to scientists and conservationists to, to, to research, you know, this shark and that shark and to, you know, help create this marine reserve and do this. I was thinking, surely there's a way we can take this model of scientific grants and we can turn it on its head and we can create these storytelling grants. You know, we can, we can create this opportunity. And, and that's when I came up with the idea of, hmm, why don't we create this marine conservation photography grant that will give young, emerging and incredibly talented photographers the opportunity to go on a paid assignment? You know, exactly like an, model it on a National Geographic assignment where you, you go out, you know, you work together with your editor to identify a topic, you do, you do the research, you do the budget, and then not only does the Save Our Seas pay for your expenses, but Save Our Seas will pay you a day rate for every day you're in the field working on this story. And once you've mm -hmm. got the images, you work with us and the editor actually, you know, you know, edit them and put them together into a narrative. And then how do you, so it was basically taking the National Geographic process and then turning it into a marine conservation photography grant opportunities where the best of the best young photographers have the chance to go on an assignment and actually get paid while they're mm -hmm. making great images and while they're learning and while they are honing their craft. And, and I think, you know, um, proof's in the pudding. You know, almost all of the previous winners, you know, who won the grant when they were at a very sort of critical stage in their career have all gone on to do the most incredible things. I think, you know, it's clear as day as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that grant can change your career and your life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a really positive thing to see. And if anybody who is listening who thinks that, that sounds like something that they would be interested in. Uh, all the announcements that we make about the storytelling grants, about the photography grants, go uh, on our social media so you'll be able to see them when they come out. They usually start the process around autumn, is that about right? Um, yeah, normally, and what I wanted to also say, I think, which is also quite important to note, is that, <laughs> you know, the other thing that kind of makes this grant incredibly unique is the fact that when you go out and tell your story, you'll be working with some of the best scientists and conservationists on the planet. You know, people who are being funded by the Save Our Seas Foundation, who've been vetted, who've gone through this incredibly difficult grant process, who are Save Our Seas Foundation grantees. And you'll, not only will you be able to, you know, you know access in, you know, incredible locations and species, but you also will be able to collaborate and partner with some of the best, you know, researchers and Save Our Seas grantees on the planet. And that's where, again, collaboration comes in. If you want to be a conservation photographer, you need to collaborate. It is not a solo thing. You're not going to be flying solo. You'll be working with others to then take those images and make a difference. And I think that's the other big 
sort of bonus that I think this grant has is that since it's all tied into the Save Our Seas Foundation, and I think at Save Our Seas Foundation, we're trying to really try to integrate these two things. We're trying to partner up storytellers with scientists. We're trying to decrease the gulf or the gap that sits between these two disciplines and try to bring them closer and closer together because the closer they sit mm -hmm. together, the more powerful conservation victories we can we can have. Mm, absolutely. And I completely I completely agree with you because I think science on the one hand, science is more creative than people actually think it is. And on the other hand as well, there'll be, you know, elements of the scientific method that people take into storytelling too. So, you know, you've got to research your story and Oh, I read more scientific papers today than I ever did as a scientist. I mean, for example, mm -hmm. for this Amazon underwater store I'm working on for Nacho right now. I've probably read more than 2,000 scientific papers, at least. Um, wow. So, so <laughs> no, like you go as a storyteller, you have to go incredibly deep. You need to have read pretty much every paper that the researcher and the scientist read who you're working with. You know, you don't want to ask them questions that you can read in the literature. You want to save that precious interaction time for things that are not in the literature. that's where we're going to have to bring it to a close. I could honestly uh, talk to you all day and ask you all sorts of things. There's loads of questions that I could have gone down, loads of different routes that I could go down. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. But if you will just humor me just for a, a last little minute, um, we do have one final question that we ask every single guest on the podcast. Um, and it's a very quick one. And I always love hearing people's answers to this. The answer is pizza. <laughs> What's the question? Sorry. Well, it'll make you laugh when I tell you what the question actually is. Um, it is, if you could be any species of shark, ray or skate in the world, what would you be and why? And unfortunately, I don't think pizza is a, is a type of shark. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Um, what, would, what species of shark or ray would I be? Um, I think I would, I'm a very curious person, you know, curiosity drives everything I do. I'm just interested in so many things. I mean, that's why I read so many scientific papers. I'm just, I'm on the hunt for new stories and new experience and new things on a daily basis. So I'm just insatiably curious. And for me, the species that sort of replicates that character trait is definitely, you know, an oceanic manta ray. Um, you know, with a lot of sharks, you look into their eyes and you, and you think, hmm, I'm not sure anyone's home there. You know, it, it seems more like, you know, okay, you know, you're swimming, you're on autopilot, that's cool. Uh, and they're awesome. But with manta rays, and especially oceanic ones, um, you look in their eyes, you get close up to them, and you just know that, you know, someone's home in there. You know, there's a, there's a, that's an animal that is incredibly curious. It is, you can just tell it wants to know more about you. It's checking you out. It's coming up to you. It's, you know, it's, it's unfolding its cephalic lobes just to, you know, figure out what's going on. You know, sometimes they even stall kind of right near you and they just kind of literally just look at you quizzically. So for mm -hmm. me, I think, you know, um, oceanic manta rays in particular are just so incredibly curious in the right circumstance. And I think... I've seen that sort of same level of curiosity in a manta ray that I know I have within me as well. So um, the answer is not pizza. It's the oceanic manta ray. <laughs> 
that is that is a fantastic answer and yeah i you you're so right unfortunately the species that i work the most with and the one that one of my favorite species of shark sadly there isn't there definitely isn't that much going on <laughs> upstairs which is which is the baskin shark obviously um I do love them though. They are they are very gentle giants. But yes, the oceanic manta ray, such a beautiful species. Tom, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and hear all of your stories and experiences. Thank you so much for giving up your time to come onto the podcast. Of course, it was an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, hope we do it again sometime soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Jamie Silver. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. Thank you so much to Tom for finding the time to fit us in. I think right now he's actually somewhere in the Amazon. So we were very lucky to catch him and very, very grateful for his time and knowledge. You can find Tom on Instagram and Twitter by looking for at Thomas Peshak or head to his website www.thomaspeshak.com and you can find his latest book Wild Seas at all major bookstores. And thank you at home for listening. As always, you can get in touch by emailing Isla at SaveOurSeas.com or via social media. We are at SaveOurSeas on Twitter and at SaveOurSeas Foundation on Instagram. We love hearing from you. And if you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps other people to find us and discover how great sharks really are and who doesn't want that. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we'll see you next time.